Today's scripture is Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Still not better. How's that? Great. Good team working together. Uh, So good morning and thank you uh, for receiving me. And I just would uh, pray that the moments we spend together uh, unpacking these scriptures and really uh, what I feel in my heart. So I come to you as a father of five children. All right. So I'm 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 an old guy. But in this uh, this message this morning, I hope that you hear a father's heart, not necessarily an earthly father's heart, but a heavenly father's heart. Because I'm going to explain the whole Bible to you in the next 30 minutes. That's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, you should give a good offering this morning when they take the offering. You get the whole Bible in 30 minutes. But um, <clears throat> I don't know if any, many of you, maybe you were on a live stream or maybe at the university, but, you know, last week, uh, Ravi Zacharias was in town. Are you familiar with that? And, and so we, we, were, we, we had dinner and we were discussing. And one of the things that he said that I thought was very interesting, he was quoting Mark Twain. And maybe you've heard this quote before. Mark Twain said that there are two days that are very significant, are the most significant in a person's life. The first one is the day you were born. And the second day is the day you discover why. So hopefully this morning it will be clear why. Each one of us, God has graciously created us for a purpose. And the purpose he created us for is his purpose. And that is expressed very clearly, I believe, in the scripture that has been read this morning. So, for me, that day came when I discovered why, as a young university sort of age guy, living in the the heart of uh, ground zero, I guess, to the I'm just an old hippie, let's just say it that way. I lived in Berkeley, California, so come from New York City, but wound up in Berkeley. And it's, it's in that place during a very tumultuous time that I didn't believe, I really, really didn't believe at all. I 
was more of an atheist than I was a believer. I come from New York City, from Brooklyn. I have this Roman Catholic Italian background. That's a cultural thing. But as I, as I became a young adult, I discarded uh, faith completely. And so in that particular time, but I did believe in this. I did think that uh, the world was in bad shape. And so I was part of this whole thing where we talked about peace and love and freedom and we should have an autonomous, you know, expression and, you know, everybody do your own thing. I went through that and, but it was at that point, it was in that place and during a very crazy time in our, in our nation's history that Jesus met me in a Damascus Road experience. Uh, the best way I could describe it, I personally met the Lord and he radically um, altered my life. And that, that, that encounter I have, not everybody has the same type of encounter with Jesus. You know, some evolve into it, but the particular one I had was dramatic. Uh, we read about him in the Bible, dramatic encounters. Isaiah had one in the sixth chapter uh, in the temple when King Uzziah died, his uncle died, and he saw the Lord, and he recognized. But there's something that is recognized when you have these encounters that I think is a common thing. I recognized and I realized just how depraved and how lost I was. And that on my best day, I didn't have the ability to love. And neither did anyone around me. Even though I had signs that talked about peace and love and I was very active in certain things, I was very selfish and so was everyone else. And we just didn't have, and I yearned and realized just how lost I was. And the Lord came and, and, and changed me, radically forgave me, saved me, and set me on a course. Now, let me take the, these particular verses that were read this morning. Are also, there, there's another set that come just two chapters later um, that, are, that are very similar. And so you ask yourself the question, why did Luke put, the, put this, this account where he says very specifically that the believers who were saved after Peter preached and after Jesus gave them, uh, his disciples, the, the gospel uh, command to go and proclaim his message in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He told them to proclaim this message, but he said, wait till the Holy Spirit comes. And you read that as you've gone through this uh, book of Acts study. And when they were empowered from on high and the Holy Spirit came, and all of the events of that wind and fire, Peter stands up and he proclaims the gospel. And in the proclamation of the gospel, it says about 3,000, you know, I'm sure that about 3,000 men at that time were converted. And then it says something right prior to the text read this morning, with many other words. And in one translation, if you read it and translate it, it's for a long time, Peter spoke to them. And he said to them, I want, you to, I want you to be saved from this perverse and this crooked generation. There's, there's this dichotomy between the world that you're in and the kingdom you've now been born into. There's a huge distinction. There's a huge chasm between these two worlds. They're like two separate kingdoms. And you've been now born and been brought into something. And so... He explained to them, but it doesn't tell us what he said. And so, as I, I mentioned in the early service, I believe today there's a football game. 
And anybody going to watch this game, by the way? Do we have any people interested in football? But, okay. Even those who don't maybe know much about football, I know, I know on Super Bowl Sunday there are people that watch football who have no idea what a first down is. They have no idea. They just eat something. They're at a party, and they're looking at a screen. I, I get all that. But some people are curious enough to say, when these guys get in a huddle, like before a play starts, and they all get in the huddle, what are they talking about? How do you know what they're talking about? Not a trick question. Speak up. How do you know what's spoken in the huddle? Where do you discover what's spoken in the huddle? The next play. The next play. Whatever they talked about in the huddle, you don't, you're not supposed to hear it, but you're supposed to see it. What Peter spoke to those early followers, if you look at the next play, that's our text for this morning. And those who believed, they did what? They devoted themselves to this biblical teaching, this apostolic teaching, to, to breaking of bread, meals together, along with communion, to prayer. And it says, and they met from ho- in houses. They met daily. And they met in each other's homes. And they shared together. And it says that they actually, there was no needy person among them. People were extremely generous because they no longer considered their possessions their own. In the same way, they no longer considered their life their own. They were purchased. They were translated from one kingdom into a new kingdom. Into a new way of thinking, a new way of living. And what I am suggesting to you is, as I said, I'll explain the Bible. The purpose of God, the eternal purpose of God, that which you have been saved for, that which the whole Bible unfolds is it's, a, it's one of the writers, a guy named Morgan, wrote one time, the unfolding drama of redemption as you go from Genesis to Revelation. If you, think of, if you think of it, the great mystery that Paul talks about in Ephesians that was kept hidden from ages past but as now is revealed and exposed. God's eternal purpose is exposed to a lost and dying world. And what is that purpose? Think of it this way. How many have ever put a puzzle together? A jigsaw puzzle. Ever do that? What is a very key thing to have as you're putting the puzzle together? Because it has what on the box? A picture. If I hold up a Bible and I say to you, hey, this is a Bible. Can you tell me what the picture is? Because you've got to put the pieces together. You've got to put the verses together. You got to put the stories together. You have to put all these things together to come out with, in the end, what God intends. So if I if I took this Bible and I tore it apart page by page, and I cut it real neatly into verses and words, and put them in a box and wrapped it pretty and shook it real nice and gave it to you, will I be giving you a Bible? How many say yes? Okay, and how many say no? Okay. In one way, you could say you're both right. Yes, I'm giving you a Bible. Now, you just got to put it together. 
So if you're going to put it together, you've got to have a picture to put it together. So in this short time, let me just share with you the picture and my journey to discovery of this picture and the result of that. The picture on the Bible, to me, is wrapped up in one very simple word, family. Family. See if you get this clue. The disciples said, Jesus, teach us to pray. We don't know how to pray. What is the first thing he said to them? When you pray, say what? Our. Why didn't he say, when you pray, say this. Oh, force of life. Oh, omnipotent God of the universe. Oh, unexplainable truth. Why? Is God the creator of everything? Is he all-powerful? Is he all-knowing? But he said, when you pray, I want you to not say, my father, I want you to say, our father. That's a clue. He also said this. When he was teaching his disciples, he said, above your food and all of your natural survival needs, food, shelter, all these, you know, don't worry about what you eat, what you're going to wear, where you're going to live. The pagans do that. But I want you to put something even above your natural survival, and that is, I want you to put first my kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Now, that, that was meant to be given to cause some sort, of, some sort of being startled and say, excuse me. I mean, if, if I don't have food, I die. If I don't have shelter, I can die. But he says, I want you to put something even above your own personal survival. And that is, I want you to pursue my purpose, which is my kingdom. So now you, you, you kind of say, and so in my, in my journey, I want to share with you a few things from my journey. I, those, those scriptures bothered me. They, I went off to seminary. I did all this other stuff. I studied, and I wound up uh, pioneering a church in a university town. And so I had, a, uh, you know, two people. We started with a little guitar. And next thing you know, we had a lot of people but during that time. But, you know, a lot of people that were pretty, pretty smart. Professors, different ones, all of a sudden things happened. It was one of those one of the, during that period of time. And I would teach through the Bible. And as I was teaching, I would always wrestle with certain passages. I was trying to figure them out. I was trying to understand what, what is being talked about here. You know, God, what is it that's, why is this book of Job written? And when I, when I got to a particular point when I was studying the book of Job and teaching the book of Job, I got to the point where I realized that, you know, Job questioned God, and then God questioned Job. And at the end of that, besides the comforters, at the end of that questioning, Job came to a conclusion. And this was his conclusion. In the 42nd chapter, he said this, right in the beginning, he said, Now I know, now I learned something. You could do anything, and no purpose of yours will be withheld from you. Now think about that. Job said, I know now that you could do whatever you want to do, and it's, I, I'm, I'm without questions anymore. You could do whatever you want. 
But I also learned this. Whatever your purpose is, you're going to get it. And that drove something in my heart as a young man. That am I attached to what God is ultimately going to get? Or am I attached to something that is not what God is ultimately going to get? So think about it. We have a book. We have a lot of verses. We have a lot of things. We have a lot of things. What is preeminent? And what you find as you go through, there's these two things that happen. One, when Jesus says, I want you to put first, he could have said, seek the kingdom. He said, I want you to make it primary. So you have to ask yourself this question, which I did. What's the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? How do I define it? How do I explain it? I have a lot of people every week. I'm this young guy. I'm reading through. I'm studying the Bible. We've got this thing going on here. People are getting converted every week by tons of them. You know, they're coming to the recognition that they're lost just the way I was. And, and, I, and now, now I'm supposed to be teaching them to put first above everything else their own personal survival, this kingdom. Lord, what is the kingdom? You know, is it, is it complicated? Is it, is it simple? Is it, you know, what is it? And then I found a very clear definition of this kingdom. And I found it in two ways. And that's why I'm sharing this journey. In Romans chapter 14, there's an explanation that Paul's given. And he says very specifically, when he defines the kingdom, talking about people who argue over disputable matters. It's a whole chapter about one person believes you should worship on this day. Another person believes you should worship on that day. One person says you shouldn't drink wine. Someone says it's okay to drink wine. Someone says this and someone says that. And Paul says there's a lot of disputable doctrines. There's a lot of disputable practices. But he says, the kingdom of God has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with eating or drinking. And that represents culture. The kingdom of God has nothing to do with whether you, uh, as I, I mentioned in the early service, I have an Italian background if you got my name. So Italians are noted for, they're not the most organized people on the planet. My wife went to Italy. I explained to her, she was walking down the street in Rome. Notice the clock in the street. It says 10 to 10. Notice the clock on the other side of the street. It says 10.30. Notice the clock on the next block. It'd be 11. None of them say the same time. That's kind of a phenomenal. Now, if you go to Switzerland and you're at a train station, they have a second hand. Who ever heard of a second hand at a train station? But when you get on that train, as soon as it hits, the train takes off with or without you. So I, re- I learned a long time ago that I read this plaque in, in, in Geneva. I saw this plaque. It said, Heaven and Hell. Heaven is a place. Ready for this? This is what it said. This is, I'm just reading it. Not politically correct, I guess. Heaven is a place where the English are the policemen where the Germans are the mechanics, where the French are the cooks, where the Italians are the lovers, and the Swiss are organizing the whole thing. Then it said hell. Hell is a place where the Germans are the cops, 
were the English of the cooks. Uh-oh, somebody hit a nerve. Where the French are the mechanics. Where the Swiss are the lovers. And the Italians are organizing the whole thing. So, so what, I, what I discovered is that we can argue over all kinds of stuff, but Jesus was very clear very clear by putting the kingdom first and Paul was very clear when he said for the kingdom of God has nothing to do with eating or drinking but it is righteousness which means right relationship that's the definition of that right relationship peace which interprets as security and joy which is expression the kingdom of God is when we're in right relationship with God and one, ourselves and one another and when right relationship is cemented there's a security that that passes all understanding. It's that peace that passes all understanding. And there's a joy unspeakable. And what you see in the text that we read this morning is that there were a group of people that were so infused with the Holy Spirit and with vision, and they were listening and being taught, that they actually said, came to the place where they looked at one another and they saw each other as family. They saw each other as brothers and sisters. And even though they didn't have a blood relation, they had a blood relation because they were all purchased by the blood of Jesus. And now they were a new community. They were an uh, an alternative society. They were the city on the hill. They were the light of the world. They were the salt of the earth. And the way they lived their life between them, amongst them, was the testimony that proved who Jesus was. It was mentioned that I founded a lead this thing called the John 17 movement. And, you know, there'll be another time when we'll be sharing about that, I believe, in the future. But, but think about this. Jesus made this prayer. When he prayed in John 17, he did say this, didn't he? Father, to everybody who will ever believe this message, the longest prayer we ever hear him pray. The longest prayer we ever hear him pray. He says, Father, whoever believed this message, make them one as you and I are one. So the world will know you sent me. That's our apologetic. That's our message. Our life together is our message. Our life together is the aroma that causes what it says in the text this morning, that they had favor, not just with God, but with people. The favor of God was upon the congregation. The favor of God was so was so much upon them that people were added to their number daily, daily. And I would like to think the reason for that is because the scripture says very clearly, God sets the lonely, the solitude in families. And as the church manifests the family, the the God-ordained family where he is the father and we are truly brothers and sisters, no one who comes in amongst us should be without a mother, or a father, or a brother, or a sister, or a house, or a land, or provision, because we have been amply given all of it, as long as we recognize this one crucial point. What God has made you to be a part of is always far greater than the part you play. Repeat that. What God has made you to be a part of, which is his church, is always far greater than the part you play. I'm not excited that I'm an ear or an, eye, an ear or an eye. 
The eye can't hear anything. The ear can't see anything. And if they get all excited that they're an ear, they get all excited that they're an eye, and they forget, no, what's exciting is that we're part of the body which contains the ear and the eye and the nose and the legs and everything that's necessary for life. And that's where God pours his blessing, and that's where the the funnel goes through of the Holy Spirit which causes people to say, I want to be part of this. And it's the reason for everything. The reason for everything should be manifested through the relationships that we share with one another in the body of Christ. That's kind of a, kind of a big way of saying that. The re, you know, they, did you see the movie or was it the movie about uh, Dawkins? Was it was the guy, the, the famous physicist? Hawkins, it was Hawkins, right? Stephen Hawkins? Sorry, Dawkins is the other guy, yeah. He had the thing, the theory of everything. I was, when I heard that, I thought, this book that I want to write, I want to put it, the, the reason for everything. And a child could understand it. You were created for the purpose, God's purpose, of being a member of his family, right related to him and one another. That may sound very trite and very simple, but it's the most profound thing that you could ever, ever comprehend. And when it reaches into the core of your being, you will say nothing that I have really is mine. It's all his, including my life, my time, my things, whatever it is. And somehow or another, there's a joy that comes when you're released of all that and you're connected to that which is eternal. The very eternal purpose of the living God, and he's your father. He said you could cry, Daddy, Abba, Father, and you could look at one another and say, I truly am your brother, your sister. And when you get my age, I can look at younger people and say, hey, I have five children naturally. You have no idea how many I have spiritually. Come to my house sometimes. It's crazy. My wife says, I can't believe we've got another 30 coming. Well, you know, you have to live out this message. We've been called to something so deep and so, and so profound. So when I, was, when I was journeying through this, I had this question teaching the book of Ecclesiastes. It says in the book of Ecclesiastes, God, God's ways from beginning to end are beyond discovery. Third chapter. But he has placed eternity in the human heart. And that's the pathway of finding him. And I asked myself this question, what is the eternity that God has placed in our heart? And so here's the two stories that took place. One, my little boy is six months old. I'm holding him. I'm studying for a long time, trying to figure out what this chapter means as I'm teaching the book of Ecclesiastes to this crowd of people. And a lady comes over next door and her son is a year old. My son's six months old. My son's crawling, hers walking, but as soon as they saw each other, they was flaring and all this stuff. I put him down on the ground, on the rug, the other kid down, and I watched them touch each other, and I watched them do all kinds of stuff, and I thought to myself, I did not teach them, him to do that. I told the lady, I didn't teach him to do that. But I know when he's a teenager, I'm going to have to tell him to say hello. He's going to be weird. He's not going to be as welcoming. He's not going to be as, as, as receiving. I'm going to have to say, get up, go say hello. 
you know, and I I thought to myself, somehow or another, he came out this way, but when he gets to this point, I must do so, I must have been doing something to get him to this point. Two days later, one of the leaders of our church, his dad had passed away and we were burying him. And I was there at the funeral and, and they were married for many years, almost 50 years, and I looked at the uh, wife and I was, try- I was telling her it was this private cemetery, family cemetery in a farm, and I was telling Ms. Williams, we need to leave now, and the casket was getting ready to be lowered. And I watched something looking at her profile. I, I watched her, her face change, and something was happening inside, and her hand just sort of almost involuntarily went up, and she reached out towards the casket, and this cry came out of her, not a scream, but this deep pain came out of her. And it was like a whispering cry that just said, no, no. And as soon as that happened, something gripped me so deeply. And I said, I believe I have just seen what I saw with my son, what God has put in the heart of every human being. There's something, this relational thing that says, this is not supposed to end. This is more important to me than anything I have. I'd give anything if I could just have you here. That we're more valuable than anything. We know that, we hear that, we teach that, but that when we see that with one another. So I was then thrust into a situation where I had to teach at a university and give a lecture on, uh, to a PhD class. Uh, they gradu- were graduating in a week or so, and they got their PhD in psychology, and it's a town where I was pastoring, and I was invited in to talk about the spiritual side of a human being. So we have a guy came in a week before, the doctor talked about the physiological things and so forth. So I was, my assignment was the spiritual side of a human being. So when I got in this class, which was a big lecture hall, you know, and there was people from all over the world and major university with different, different beliefs. And back then we had chalkboards, which you don't have too much anymore, but... So I had to write on the chalkboard, and I wrote on the chalkboard this phrase. I put the kingdom of God, and I said, when I'm finished in an hour and a half, every one of you are going to agree with me that the kingdom of God is the only solution to the political, social, economic, racial, every ailment of the, of the human race. The only answer is the kingdom of God. The teacher in the back said, professor said, I believe you checkmated yourself. I said, well, we'll see. I said, but when it gets to the end of the class, we will disagree on how that kingdom comes about. That part we will have a little questions on, but you're going to agree with me about the kingdom. So I asked the class this question. When's the happiest you've ever been in your life? And I'm asking you that question. You can think about it. When's the happiest you've ever been in your life? And the answers that I got in that class were this. The day my baby was born, the day I got married. All, there were answers along these lines. When I asked the question, when this, and there was a number of them, I asked the question, when's the saddest you've ever been in your life? When my mother died. My girlfriend broke up a few weeks before my wedding, my fiancé. And they went through different, different things, a baby that died. And they went through all these things. So then I said, can I just summarize this and tell me if I'm wrong. Would you say that in this classroom, 
at this particular moment in space and time, as we're journeying through at this university, that everyone in this room is confessing that the greatest joy and the greatest sorrow of their lives come from their relationships, not their things or their degrees or anything else. And they actually all said yes. I said, I just want to make sure that at least here in this room at this moment, we've hit on some absolute in this room that the greatest joy and sorrow of our lives come from our relationships. And then I asked the second question, if we were living 500 years ago, would we have the same answer? And they said, yes, if we were living 500 years from now in the future, would we have the same answer? And they said, yes. So I said, so is it possible that you're graduating with your PhDs, and here we are hitting on an absolute truth? And because I thought of Solomon, remember? God has put something in the heart of a human being that is their pathway to finding him. And that thing that he's put in there is called eternity, that woman who reached out over the grave. There's something inside of us that we know that the deepest joy and the deepest sorrow in our life does not come because of our position. It does not come because of of whatever it might be, our wealth or whatever it may be, or gifts. It comes from our relationships. That's why family is so significant. We have people that say, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I can't change. I could choose my friends, but I can't choose my family. Have you heard that expression? I guess I got to love the guy. I got to spend Christmas with him. He's my family. I mean, it's not really the best way of saying it, but you know. We intuitively know this truth. And Christianity is to display what's in the human heart. And the local church is actually one of the best Well, I think it is the way, in my conviction, the local congregation, the community of believers that dwell in this area of of the Valley of Phoenix, that consider themselves a member of the Redemption family, that you say, hey, I I have been called not to come just hear a message, not to come just hear a song, not to come just take communion. And you get taught this very well. I'm familiar with uh, much of of, of the, the church's that we are to be connected together in such a way that there's an inward testimony that rises up within the hearts of people that observe us, that know us, that get around us, that say Jesus was truly sent of the Father. See how they love one another. See how they care for one another. See how there's no need amongst them. See how the lonely, as it says in the Psalms, have been placed into families, the solitary God places into families. I'm telling you from my humble opinion that focusing on the kingdom of God, that centering yourself into what Jesus made you to be a part of, and not focusing just on the part that you play, but really meditating and thinking on what Jesus made you to be a part of, his family, his congregation, his people, that's what will change the world. And the scandal of the church and the battle that we have is not with a secular society. The battle that we have is the scandal of division amongst us. This body of Christ embracing the vision of the kingdom of God, opening their hearts to it and saying, as it says, as it says in the scripture, 
And when you get to the fourth chapter, where, it's, where they repeat it again, where Luke says, they did not consider their possessions or what they had their own. They didn't even consider that. They considered something far greater. What they've been made to be a part of was far greater than what they had. And, they, and that, my brothers and sisters, that is the message of God. That is the message of the Bible. There's a family shop. It's on the book. It's on the cover of this book. And as you unfold the pages of it, and you unfold it properly and rightly divide it, you'll come to the end of time where you'll see now the dwelling of God is with his people, and he will dwell with them forever and ever and wipe away every tear from their eye. Because we are his habitation. That's, those are just not nice words. Those are lived out from the inside out. Can we stand together, please? I want to, as we take time to reflect on, I know we have a time of reflection. I want to just uh, share a personal, just a little personal testimony. I just flew in last night from New York where uh, we've experienced three deaths in our family in the last eight months. My mother passed away. uh, My father-in-law passed away. And now a very close aunt of mine passed away, my father's sister. And so I've officiated these three uh, funerals of our family. And at my mother's funeral, my brother, I have a brother, he sat next to me, and we've had difficulties, you know, just difficulties. Have you ever had any family strife? Anybody? And it was at the end when we were closing the casket and I was there with the funeral director. I was there and he came to sit next to me. And he said this. He, 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 he apologized and so forth. We had, he shared some things that were very nice. And, but then he, he said, looking at our mother in a casket, he said, you know, all she wanted was for us to be together. That's all that mattered to her. Nothing else mattered. The estate, the this, we have a business, we have all this stuff. Nothing else mattered to her except the children being together. Now you tell me, as if, if you who are parents, is there anything more important to you than your children loving one another? It's not a hard, this is not a hard, complicated you know, deeply, you know, you got to be a, a genius to figure out. God's a father. He wants his children to love one another. And the world desperately needs to see it. So let me pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, this is a wonderful group of people that you have redeemed. And as they reflect right now, would you remind them that there is the reason why they were born was to be part of your family 
and what they've been made a part of is far greater than their particular part, but they're part, one of another, in the body of Christ in this place to demonstrate your purpose, your eternal purpose for Jesus' sake. Amen.